order. The first Sunday in May, we'll commission our new elders, the fifth. Um, we will also have Compassion Sunday. That will be that same Sunday. And then I think Mother's Day is like the next Sunday, maybe? Yeah. And so we'll, we'll do a really special thing for Mother's Day, and I'll wish you Happy Mother's Day before the sermon starts. <laughs> we'll just be lucky this year that it's not going to have anything to do with homosexuality or divorce or Moab. If you remember that scenario, so so it's it's going to work out pretty well. I think we did the wedding at not, uh, the Canaanite woman who was called a dog. Was that, yeah. Yeah. that happened. Yeah. So this year, let's see. It's going to be like the God of comfort. It's going to be great. You know, it's somewhere in that realm. So all right, that's coming up the last Sunday of May, which I believe is the 26th. Um, we are having potluck. The point of this potluck is to have potluck. It's fellowship. We want to just get together and have fun, enjoy a meal together. But this potluck is specific. It is signature dish potluck. So if you've got something you're known for, something you think you're known for, if you're known for pizza, I mean, whatever, whatever you're known for, you're known for Kentucky Fried Chicken. Whatever you're known for, that's what you're bringing. You got it? Does that make sense? So if you come in here with hot dogs, I'd be like, are you known for hot dogs, really? Is that what you're known for? I'm not even known for that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, if you are known for hot dogs, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to offend. Better be a good hot dog. <laughs> All right, so that'll be the last Sunday. It'll be a normal service meal to follow, typical setup. So we'll um, have sign-up sheets and stuff like that as we get a little closer. we got a month before that rolls around. And then two weeks later, we're going to have a men's prayer breakfast before church on Sunday morning. I think we're doing nine. The details to that as we get closer, and we'll just have breakfast, pray for the church, and then have service. So those are some things coming up. Um, I think I didn't get to see Catherine's video Sunday morning. Um, yeah, I saw it like in the car before church, but did everybody get the gist of what that was? We're going to start having themes for every month. There's going to be a outreach theme, and this month's outreach theme is was in that video. It's a name like someone who doesn't like a neighbor, someone around you. Welcome a stranger into your life. Yep. Was that? Yeah. I think that's what it was. Um, so we're going to start emphasizing a specific category for outreach opportunities and and planning larger ones um, throughout the year, two, at least two per year. So I'm excited about where that's going. So you'll get more and more information on that. That's May's theme, so technically hasn't started yet. So you a little bit of prep time. So that's coming. Okay. I think, that's, I think that's all the announcements. That was a lot. If I missed Don't anything that you know of. Well, if you welcome them between now and the beginning of May, we'll just roll it over okay. and call it. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll be a little gracious. Um, Brian, I'll also let anybody know that everybody knows what's going on. If they have any questions, they can call me or whatever. Yes, if you want to be in the loop, talk to Sue about Sue. <laughs> it's like, that sounded really vague as it came out of my mouth. Well, you know. Most of you know what I'm talking about. So, anyway. Okay. I think that's it. Let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for tonight and this opportunity to fellowship together. God, I pray you bless our study of your word. Help us to make sense of it. Help us to read it in a way that we can understand and apply it to our church, how we do things. God, I pray that you'd bless. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are in the second part of our two-part series, and we are in the second piece of the second part. So this is part two, session two. Part one was, we're going through our doctrinal system. Section one was what we called foundational beliefs. We had four categories for that. Anybody remember off the top of their head what those four categories were? Creational monotheism, which includes the Trinity. One. These are the foundational bedrock things everybody the has to agree on. The five solas. That was the last one. What? The five what? So, no, that was the third one. Sorry. 
I can't hold that finger out, but she can work with it. All right, the five solas. Do I? Resurrection is the fourth one. And the historical gospel event. So the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We included the incarnation and the exaltation in that conversation. Those were the bedrocks. Uh, to call yourself Christian, you need to agree with those. There was a big article in the, was the Washington Post, New York Times. I don't remember which one it was. Some Christian evangelical president of a seminary talking about how you know you can be Christian and you don't have to necessarily believe some of these things literally took place. And of course, the big evangelical response to that is, oh, well, that's fine. Just don't use our label because you're not one of us. Yeah. Right? This is what we are. And to deny that is to deny the very bedrock of Christianity. That's not up for discussion. This is what we believe. Right, so now we're in the second category of beliefs. And we are saying to some degree these aren't as important as the first, but we're not saying these aren't important. These aren't important enough that we define our church by these categories. They're big enough deal we operate by them. There is disagreement among Christians on these topics. We land on a side on these topics, and we operate based on how we view the scriptures on these topics. So I kind of want to say two things. One, our opinions here don't determine whether or not you're a real Christian. But we do believe you really should read the scripture this way and that this is the way you ought to do church. It's what we ought to practice because we do believe this is what the Bible teaches. So last week we covered the first category, which was the ordinances. We have two. Do you remember what those two ordinances are? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. So the main idea with baptism, or the points of contention anyway, is how, what's the mode of baptism? How do we do it? Underwater come up because it represents the death and resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection. All right? And then another piece of baptism, who do we baptize? Believers. Only believers. Um, not, not children, not infants. You've got to be old enough to possess faith in Christ. And we talked about the Lord's Supper. And uh, that one gets more mystic when we start talking about that one. It's harder to convey at times. But does the bread and wine literally turn into the body of Jesus when we take the supper together? No, no. All right, in fact, we would say that the physical body of Jesus is not technically present at all. But we would say that there's a presence of God. It is communion after all. There's a presence, especially through the form of the Holy Spirit, with us. There's a spiritual sacrament element to the Lord's Supper, not in the false way to mean that word in the Roman Catholic system, but in the more historical use of the term. It's just meaning there's a... Some kind of mystical thing going on, a spiritual and physical reality happening. There's a blessing in it. Not a, you get a little more saved sort of blessing. Just like in a worship service where you may have a moment with the Lord that's just special. The Lord's Supper is something that is given to us to do for that. Now, who do we let take the Lord's Supper? So we say believers only. Who do we generally leave that up to? We leave it up to the individual because you examine your own heart. But in the case of church discipline, we are fencing the table. And so we would disallow someone from taking communion with us if they were under church discipline. Or that topic will actually come in to what we're going over tonight. So now we are moving into congregational polity. Another way of saying this is how is our church governed? That's the topic we are looking at. So we're going to have to go through several different categories. Obviously, there's different types of church government. Right, we're in a Baptist church, which would be considered a type of congregational church. If you went to a Catholic church, that is not a congregational church. Who calls the shots in that system? The Pope. The whole system, the church structure itself, calls the shots. That happens in a lot of other denominations. So even in the Methodist church... All right, there's the bishop over your area. You can be sent to another church. You can request to stay. You can request to go. You can leave it up to the discretion of the bishop. You know, there's things like that. You have input. The church has input, but the authority does not rest there. Presbyterians do it closer to us than, than most other things, but it's not exactly the same. And all of these different churches we go to, you'll find, have very different ideas of how a church should be governed. Even within the congregational world, you have a multiple different varieties of congregational church. So if you go to any First Baptist Church versus any other Baptist church, um, they may be in the same denomination. They may both be congregational, 
but they may do that congregational polity in very different ways. And so we're, we're organized very differently than, say, First Baptist is at this church. So we're going to walk through. Those are the questions we're dealing with tonight. How exactly does this work? So we're going to start with the concept of authority, that first category, the authority in a local church. Now, we won't go deep into this first point because we technically covered it already in an earlier session. So the sole source of authority for the local church is the Bible. Very good. That one, you should definitely get that one right. I've misplaced my marker already. Did somebody steal my marker? Did I have it in my hand? Yeah. All right, so the sole source of authority is the Bible. Now, that was technically one of the five solas, right? Which sola? <laughs> Good job. Sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. Which means Bible alone. It's the sole authority. What has authority over us? The Bible alone. That's a fundamental teaching in Protestant churches at large, especially in a Baptist congregational worldview. The sole source of authority for the local church is the Bible. So the sole source of authority is not some church council. It's certainly not a denominational leader. It's absolutely not the Pope. It's not the pastor. It's not you. It's not a congregational vote. The sole authority rests on Scripture alone. Now, we have a tendency to think of, you know, any of those systems— the buck stops with one of those entities. In a lot of churches, the buck stops with the congregational vote or the nominating committee or the deacon body or the elder body. Well, what if the elders get together and decide, you know what, we don't think the mission of the church is to make disciples. We think the mission of the church is to be a good, just evangelistic entity that welcomes people and makes them feel welcome so they can hear the gospel on Sunday morning. Do they have the authority to say that? <laughs> Under what authority would you fire the elders? Jesus gave us a very direct commandment. Make disciples. That commandment, that authority, ultimately, and, and not by degree, by, by fundamental intrinsic nature, the scriptures carry authority that nothing else can possess. So that's a, we have to include that in any conversation about how the church should be governed because ultimately it is the scripture that has the authority. Now, what we're going to do next is walk through the book of Acts. So let's go ahead and open up to Acts. And uh, we'll start in chapter 1. We're, we're not really going to camp out on any one verse. We're just going to jump all over this book uh, for several of these topics. And the reason we're looking at Acts is because formally there's no church in the Gospels to talk about. Does that make sense? Formally, the church starts in the book of Acts. Now, the mission of God, the, the gospel of Christ has already started to be preached. But when we think about the church in a formal sense, we're definitely limited to the New Testament and the book of Acts in particular. So I want to talk about a group of people called the apostles. Can you give me an example of an apostle? Peter, James, John, those are the three in the inner circle. Who's the, the late apostle, the untimely born apostle? Paul. Paul, very good. So these are the guys we think about with the apostles. And so this isn't a blank, but just to remind ourselves, when we say the apostles, and we're talking the capital A, we mean something super specific. The word just means sent with authority. So like if, if I sent Abby to go tell the boys something, I could say she had an apostolic mission. Because I sent her with my authority to do something. And sometimes people use the word apostolic in more of that sense. I would rather use this word in just the one limited sense. And we specifically mean the group of people that Jesus gave a special sort of authority to. Not everybody else got this authority. You may remember when we were walking through Matthew's gospel, he called a group together and he gave them authority. And then at the end, when he calls the disciples together, he says all authority has been given to me. And the universal commission doesn't carry with it the same sort of authority that the apostles had. The apostles wrote scripture. The apostles were able to speak with God's authority in a way that we cannot. The apostle Paul, when he didn't have a direct command from Jesus, would just give us a command from Jesus. He had the authority to do that. 
And that's what these apostles are. So first blank there. The apostles exercised a unique authority in the early church. So, you know, chapter 1, they replaced, well, they received the commission, then they replaced Judas. And then chapter 2, they're praying, they received the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches his sermon on Pentecost. And then you know how Acts 2 ends, they... 3,000 people get saved. They devote themselves to who's teaching? The apostles' teaching. Very important. They're devoting themselves to that, and then the church is growing day by day. So in chapters 3 and 4, the church continues to grow. They all um, they see God's glory work in powerful ways. Get down to verse 32 in chapter 4. It says, Now the full number of those who believed will have one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great power upon the apostles. And then look down at verse 35. They were selling everything. They laid it at the feet of the apostles. You see the same thing in the last verse of that chapter? And Barnabas laid his money at the feet of of the apostles. You see this consistently in the early church. The apostles have a very high level of authority. In chapter 5, skip down to verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, as opposed to whose hands? Well, as opposed to anyone else, yeah. So the apostles are in a very unique Categories of verse 14, and more and more, um, more, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall upon some of them. So, what's going on with the Apostle Peter in this case? He's healing people with his shadow. Like, this is insane what's happening. But this is the apostles. This isn't everybody. This is something the apostles are doing. Specifically, their power is on a different level. They have a very unique authority in the church. But we get to chapter 6, and we find out that the apostles are getting a little bit overworked. All right, and what happens in chapter 6? Deacons. Deacons, maybe. I actually don't think these are deacons, but they could be. A lot of people think it's deacons. Um, I don't think there's a good argument for it because the that's not what tonight's about. But so the apostles, the scenario is they don't want to take care of this ministry with the Greeks, the Greek speaking um, believers. What do they want to keep doing? They want to keep doing the ministry of the word, which is something a little more specific than just preaching. They have a different kind of ministry of the word. Ultimately, the apostles leave us what? The writing. The writing. The scripture, the written word. The written word is more powerful than the spoken word. It's a biblical principle. The written word is more powerful than the spoken word. If you want proof of that, 2 Peter 1.19, um, very elaborate. I think we talked about that when we did the um, Sola Scriptura, so I won't unpack it greatly, but Peter's comparing God the Father speaking to him directly on the Mount of Transfiguration versus the written word, and he says the written word is far better than even the direct spoken word that he heard. It's amazing that he says it that way, but that's the biblical teaching. They were committed to the word. So they create these group of people. So Stephen is one, Philip is one. They're going to delegate some of their responsibilities. Now, over the course of time, it's clear that the group that they designate these responsibilities to are elders, okay? So this is very significant. So the apostles shared their leadership responsibilities with elders, but transmitted their authority through the written word. Okay, so Acts 6, we saw them delegate those seven guys. And then I want you to skip forward to Acts 15. So some time has gone by, and I want you to see how the church, how the Jerusalem church in particular is referenced. So Paul's been saved. Gentiles have started getting saved. The church controversy comes up. Paul is sent with Barnabas to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles and the church there to see what's going on. And I want you to see this Acts 15, um, verse 2. It says, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate about them, Paul and Barnabas 
and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the who? And the elders. Well, at first, everything in Jerusalem is apostles. Apostles' feet. The apostles' feet. The apostles' feet. Now it's the apostles and the elders. The apostles and the elders. We see this trend throughout this passage. So in verse 6, you see it again. Um, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So who's dealing with the matter of who can be saved, whether or not you have to have circumcision? The apostles with the elders. The apostles clearly have a prime role in the scenario, but the elders are included. We see this continue to go on. Um, even in verse 22, when it's all been decided, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So you see that same sort of inclusion. We fast forward further, go to Acts chapter 21. And so now this is after Paul's done his missionary journeys. He's on his way back to Jerusalem. And I want you to see how this is worded, 21 verse 18. So Paul has finally made it back to Jerusalem. He's brought that offering. He's come back. He says, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. What word's missing now? Apostles. There's no apostles here. This is different James, by the way. The other James, Peter, James, and John, that James is dead. This is the James who writes the book of James. Jesus' brother. Jesus' brother. And so it's the elders present. You see this thing transmit through the book of Acts. They go from apostles, 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 elders, really important dude, elders. See what I'm saying? So there's a transmission and authority from the apostles to the elders. But it's not a direct transition. Not everything goes directly to the elders. What specifically did not go to the elders? The writing of Scripture. That transition did not transmit to the elders. That transmitted through the word itself. So everybody follow the basic idea there? So... It's very important, as we understand congregational polity, to understand that apostles, in the, that one capital A sense, are done. They did not get replaced in Jerusalem. They were replaced not by more apostles, but by a different category. And that category is elder. So very significant. Um, all right, so let's talk about what elders are then. The elders of the local church. Next section. Um, we'll look at several different scriptures here. You're already in Acts 21, so just back up to chapter 20. And uh, if you look at verse 17, this is Paul. He's done his last missionary journey. We had a map here. He's looped up. He's coming back down to Jerusalem, down here. He wants to talk to the elders in Ephesus, but he doesn't want to go to Ephesus because if he goes to Ephesus, it'll take him like five years to leave. You ever have a conversation with somebody, you want to tell them something, but you text them rather than calling them because you only have five minutes? Does that make sense? Like, Paul's just saying that, and he didn't want to go to Ephesus, so he calls the Ephesian elders to come somewhere else. So that's who's gathered. So now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So when they came, then he preaches the sermon. I want to pay attention to verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he ordained, I mean, sorry, obtained with his own blood. So who made those people overseers technically? God. God did. The Holy Spirit did. This is the Holy Spirit's appointment. This is what they are for. And so elders were appointed to oversee. oversee the spiritual health of the local body of Christ. You see the same sort of thing in 1 Peter chapter 5. We won't go there. Peter calls himself a fellow elder, but then he uses that same expression to oversee and to shepherd. Now with that in mind, uh, let's fill in the next blank. So the biblical terms for the position, one, Paul had called the elders together at Miletus, right? He called the elders together in his sermon he says, God has made you overseers. Now, we don't really use that um, term these days. The, another way to translate that Greek word is bishop. So if you want to call me Bishop Silo, yeah. I mean, you can, 
it's biblical, right? It just feels wrong, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, that's not how we do that. All right, but it is <laughs> overseer is or the Episcopal Church. Have you heard of that? That's the Greek expression, is episkopos, overseers. All right, then not only are they made overseers, but they're made overseers so that they can care. Now, what do you think care is? It's pastor or shepherd. It's all the same word in the Greek. So which word do we usually use to refer to elders? Pastor is the most common term these days. Now, in Baptist churches, the word elder is scary sometimes. If you take our Baptist faith and message, um, so it says the, the biblical offices for the church in the modern version says pastors and deacons. If you go back to the original version, there's, pastors aren't on the list. It says um, bishops and um, bishops, uh, bishops and elders and deacons. So, because nobody was using the word pastor back then. Interestingly enough, the word pastor is the least used term in the New Testament for that position. The most common term, of course, they're in order. This is the most common term. That's the next most common term. This one is usually only a verb, not even a noun. Does that make sense? It's usually to shepherd people, not the shepherd. Does that make sense? So this is the default term. But that's what we're talking about, that one position, elder, bishop, and shepherd, or pastor. Elders were appointed in every town to shepherd the flock, this is key, locally. I want you to see that. We covered this fairly recently in Titus. We did that super fast run through of Titus before we did Malachi. And what Paul told Titus was, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town. Well, why not just have elders centrally located and then all these other guys would just be delegated to this group centrally located? They can't oversee or shepherd if they're somewhere else. The concept of elder is equally the concept of present and local. There's no concept biblically of long-distance eldership. So that's why it's a big deal for us as a congregational church that we don't have elders over us somewhere else. There's not a presbytery that we submit to. There's not a denominational entity that we submit to. The eldership is present here. Shepherding should happen here. All right, so let's keep going. Last one, elders are given by God to strengthen the soul's of believers. So I want to show you both of these passages. So Ephesians 4.12 is a great one. There's a beautiful image here that we don't have time to get into about how Jesus didn't just give these gifts but acquired the authority to give these gifts. But verse 11 says he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and then the shepherd teachers. Well, who are they, you think? These are the elders. The shepherd teachers are the elders. Who gave them? Jesus himself gave that position to the church. To what end? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is the strength in the body. God created this position and gave this position to the church for our mutual benefit. You see the same scenario in Hebrews 13, 17. And, uh, this is where you know, you know a lot of elders like to quote this one. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Period. No, it's not a period there. But you, know, you want to say it that way. But it doesn't mean, go get my tea. Where's my coffee? It's not what we're talking about. Right. What kind of submit is this? This is spiritual leadership. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Well, give an account of what? Not only myself, but you. So let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
Not going to lie, there's times where it's like, oh, man, I'm responsible for that, dude. <laughs> it happens, right? I'm just telling you, don't be that guy. <laughs> That's what it's saying. Let them do this with joy, where there's guys that I can look around and say, oh, man, praise the Lord that that family is in this church. We have a lot of that here, and I'm very, very happy for it. But this is how the biblical system works. So you have these local elders who are overseeing the church, not with any sort of direct authority, but with an indirect authority. I only have authority over you in as much as what I'm saying comes from the book. And I'm not really saying it out of my authority to tell you. I'm letting you know that this is what God said. And if God said it, you are now obligated to obey, not me, not any of our elders, but God directly. And so we only possess an indirect authority. It's not even quite right to call it authority. It's more of a responsibility to show you and equip you and train you in what God has stated. It's what elders are for. So we've dealt with two categories. So the authority of the local church rests in the scriptures alone. You could say elders is the biblical office given to administer, to share, to train and equip what that book says. So if you read the distinctions or the qualifications between elders and deacons, the primary difference between the two and Timothy is elders are required to be able to teach because they have a specific responsibility to administer the word. This is what they're for. They're teaching the word of God. So we put all this together. We still don't quite have congregational polity. So we need to deal with the members of the local church. All members are spirit-filled. What spirit are we talking about? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. This is God himself. The Holy Spirit distributed out among us all. So that, uh, we could do all of 1 Corinthians 12. I love that chapter. I'm just going to read verse 7. It says, To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So, if you're practicing biblical church membership, how many of your members have the Holy Spirit in them? should be 100%. Now, this is an interesting note. I know some people want to go back to casting lots. You know, not calling out anybody specifically, Tim. But uh, <laughs> lots never happen again in the New Testament after the day of Pentecost. Isn't that interesting? Why do you think that is? The Holy Spirit is in us, and we are led by him. And I think it's interesting that that's not just, this isn't a thing for the apostles. This isn't a thing for the elders. This is a thing for Christians. If you are truly a believer, the Holy Spirit resides in you. Furthermore, we can go to 1 Peter 2.9. And you probably know which one this is going to be. Anybody want to guess before we get there? All members are what? Uh, children is not wrong, but it's not the one I'm going for. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We are priests to God. All members are priests to God. This is, when we say members here, though, we, we are equating membership in this list means actual believer. Right? So, and if we do credo-baptism... The only people who should be members of our church are people who have professed faith in Christ. So all membership ought to be spirit-filled and also ought to all be priests to God. Now, this next one I want you to see very clearly in Scripture. We've talked about it a lot, but I feel like it just needs to be said even more often than we do say it. And this one's important enough. I want you to see where we're getting it, not just hear me say it. So Matthew 18, picking up in verse 15. Matthew 18 15. Anybody know the topic before they even get there in Matthew 18, 15? Church. Church. It's one of the few times church is mentioned. Maybe the only time, actually. Church is mentioned in any of the four Gospels. Church discipline. Kind of levels, right? First thing, if your brother sins against you, what does Jesus tell us to do? One-on-one, -on -one, right? You go talk to your brother. 
If he listens, you've won a brother, right? So if he listens, you've gained your brother. Verse 16, if he does not listen, take two, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So this is you and what? One or two others. This is not, be clear though, this is not your posse against that one guy. What are these extra people for? verification. Have you ever accused someone and you were wrong? Have you ever been this guy and this guy was wrong? Oh yeah, that happens. The Bible expects that that's going to happen. So there's a verification process. There's also verification in the sense that, well, did you really say it well? Did you really say what you meant? Well, you got people in the room. We know. We can have a much clearer, correct conversation. If repentance happens there, Praise the Lord. We're done. But we're talking about a topic where repentance doesn't happen there. What's it say to do next? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you like a Gentile or a tax collector. How did they treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Didn't hang out with them. They weren't welcome at the table. Now, when we say not welcome at the table, we mean something very precise, though. Church discipline formally to excommunion them, excommunicate, is to kick them out of the Lord's table. You can't have fellowship with us. That seems really strong language, right, to say that. What are we saying by not letting someone take the Lord's Supper? We're saying you don't qualify to take this meal. What have we just said? We cannot affirm that you... Are a Christian. Now, could the guy up here say that? It didn't happen here either. Where did that statement get said? At the church level. So see what he says. Truly I say to you, whatever, and just let's get our southern English right here. Whatever y'all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever y'all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Okay, so let's talk doctrine of God for a second. You've heard of the concept of omnipresence. So what does it mean for God to be omnipresent? So where can you go and get away from him? So is there anywhere he isn't? Nowhere that God isn't. How much of God is present in this room? All of well, How much of God is present on the other side of the universe? All of God. The reason is because God's not made of parts. It's not like you can stretch him out and part of him's here and part of him's there, right? That's not how it works. God's all God and he's all present in all places. But the Bible says right here that there's some sense in which God is with us as a group that he is not with us as an individual. That bothered me as a kid. I'm not going to lie. I knew the doctrine of omnipresence. And I knew people would say all the time to get together for worship. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. I'd be like, I thought he was, thought he was already among us. And technically, if I'm a believer, is God with me? Yes. Spirit dwells inside of me. He's very much with me. So in what sense... Is God present in the group, but he's not present with an individual? Authority. The authority to affirm or deny the legitimacy of someone's faith. That's what this is about. That's what church membership means. As a group, we can say, yeah, you're, you're, you're the real deal. As far as we can tell, you're the real deal. Church discipline is the opposite of that. That's us saying... Man, we've tried, we've worked with you, we have shared the word with you, and you're not repenting. We can't, in good faith, still say you're one of us. We wish we could, but we can't. And so we will loose you. Now this lingo of loosing, uh, have you heard that before in Matthew's Gospel? That was back in chapter 16, when he told Peter, he said, I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will 
build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is called exercising the keys. Church membership is about the keys. Now, we're not making you a true believer or us and the Lord and you. So the Bible does this. In fact, if you want to see an example of church discipline, let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. Paul dealt with a guy in really grotesque sin that we don't want to get too specific into at the moment. Um, but this is what he tells them to do because he's very unrepentant. Verse 4, chapter 5, verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, not when you're separate, not privately, not in a conversation with him alone. He specifically says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Can you assemble and it not be in the name of the Lord Jesus? Yeah, I mean, we're talking this is a formal get-together. I mean, I can go out to lunch with you, and we're Christians and we're hanging out together, but we're not necessarily formally assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is church, guys. This is the actual gathering of the body. So when, I'm, when that's happening, my spirit's present with you, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Didn't tell the elders to go do that. Didn't tell the deacons to go do that. Didn't tell one guy to go do that. Where did it have to happen? Church level. Had to happen with the assembled body. So think about that. What would we fill in? So the members of the church exercise authority in church discipline. See that kind of authority that's being exercised? And then the authority of Jesus is present in a way with the gathered body that it is not present with the individual. If you're turning over somebody's flesh to Satan so that it's destroyed with the spirit to save. Yeah, so the idea there is that this is a in hopes of repentance. Is that we're gonna we're gonna take you, feed you to the wolves, and hopes that you're gonna hang out with the wolves and say, Never mind, you're right, I was wrong, I'm coming back. So that in the end the soul is saved. It's not saying that we're going to turn him over to Satan, and he gets killed, but he was a believer anyway, so he gets saved. That's not what that passage is saying. I mean, we could be wrong, you know, but we're not perfect, but we, we want to be as accurate as possible and as gracious as possible. You know, we have to do church discipline in a, in a world where everybody practicing church discipline also sins. You know, so we have to do it with a, a very high level of grace and understanding rooted in our own repentance. Okay. I know some of that's weighty stuff. Um, this is congregational polity. So among Baptists, you, you can do this different ways. So we're an elder emphasis congregational church as opposed to a lot of your first Baptists will either be a, you got a single elder calls all the short shots model, which is a senior pastor rules the show, CEO kind of thing. Or you have a layman-led church, which is the, a deacon body, which really, if you're doing it that way, you're really kind of doing elders. You're just calling them deacons. Um, but that's what you usually see a lot of in the Baptist world. It's all congregational. We would be the elder-led version of that, if that makes sense. So I say we're more like a democratic republic. The church doesn't vote on anything, but the church has a say in who does vote on everything. Because y'all do the nomination. So just not pure illustration but it works okay so that's congregational polity now in two minutes i want to explain what it means to say southern baptists so we are southern baptist affiliated and i've found over the years that people have no idea what that means so most people think southern baptist means a particular form it does not um, it means really these identifying beliefs we go through it means you basically fall in camp with pretty much all of these is what it means to be Southern Baptist, plus 
the piece I'm going into right now. So, number one, the SBC is a voluntary association of churches who cooperate together for the sake of spreading the gospel. This is key. Voluntary association of churches. Um, we can join the SBC today and leave it tomorrow, and then join it again the day after. It's a voluntary relationship. They may look at us and go, uh, what's wrong with you? It's very easy to join the SBC. You send them money, and you have joined. Um, you can get kicked out, and it does happen um, from time to time. But uh, you know, if, you, if you want to be a member and you send them a check, then your church is a Southern Baptist church. It's uh, unfortunately too easy, maybe, but, but that's the whole idea of a voluntary association. Um, number, second one, so there's three autonomous levels of cooperation. So some of this lingo gets thrown out from time to time. I just want you to see how it works. Well, it's on your paper. So level one is local associations. So our local association has a very fancy name. It's called the Jackson County Baptist Association. Very common for them to be named after a county. If they're more than one county, like the next couple counties over, the Gulf Coast Baptist Association. I guess we, we're not on the Gulf Coast. We got left out. But it's just a low, it's the local group. That is a completely autonomous entity. Our local association can't tell us what to do. We can tell them what to do because we are members of that and get the vote. But it only works that direction. So they could come up with a new policy, a new doctrinal statement, and we would go, what? Or, yeah, finally. It's voluntary, and it's not directly. It, it's... It's a completely autonomous relationship. So the local association is also completely autonomous from the next level, which is the state convention. They do usually work in tandem, but the local money pays the local salaries. State money pays the state salaries. There's no hiring, firing relationship in any kind between the local and state level associations. Completely autonomous entity. So local associations usually focus on coordinating mission projects or mission outreach events, or for us, we have the port ministry, which is a pretty big deal. We, we have thousands of people from across the globe come through Jackson County, and so we have a full-time paid guy who is there to share the gospel. That's his job, and to facilitate people participating in that. Those sorts of things. State level gets a lot more complicated. That money goes towards, we have three colleges. It pays a lot of the expenses there. There's a lot of just um, organization, church help stuff. We do church planning. I get to participate in that piece. Lots of things like that. And then the final level, the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the national full size. All three of these levels are completely autonomous. They have no direct relationship with one another, but they all work in tandem together. Um, and to say we are a Southern Baptist church basically means we give them money. That So we can participate. We cannot participate. We can give we cannot give. We do give. And the Southern Baptist Convention, the highest level, of the two most important entities that are part of that level is what we call the International Mission Board, the IMB, or the North American Mission Board, NAM. Uh, both of those, in my estimation, are two of the more powerful sending networks on the planet. Um, I may not agree with everything they do or say or, or do in their systems, but they produce a lot of fruit. <laughs> And a lot of money goes there. So when we give, we give a portion to the cooperative program, which funds everything, and then an equal portion directly to the International Mission Board, just because that's a big deal. They're taking the gospel literally to the ends of the earth. So that, those are the two main entities. There's also six seminaries, a, a politics entity that's just supposed to speak into the political side of things. There's um, the executive committee, and only like 1% of the budget actually goes the executive functions at the national level. I'm very excited about that. But like 60% of it goes to those functions in the state level, and that's kind of disappointing if you compare the two. But it's still better than nothing. So anyway, we participate in the SBC through giving to the cooperative program. And then the last one, oh yeah, this is significant. Got to hit this. So the Southern Baptist Statement of Faith, called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, is a descriptive rather than prescriptive document. Think about that. All Southern Baptist churches are super autonomous, super, super congregational. Can the convention enforce a system of belief? It can't. As much as at times it wants to, 
and at times we've tried, um, we can't. Because of the nature of how the system works, that can't be done. So instead, we have a document that describes more or less what Southern Baptists believe. So you can imagine the document at times is kind of vague. It's, it's a pretty big umbrella. There's people that fit the umbrella that I probably wouldn't go to church with, but they're in the umbrella, and so it counts. And so, you know, that, so if you've ever read the, doc, the document, it's, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. So we could disagree with half of it and still be Southern Baptists because you don't have to agree with it. Um, now, if you disagree with it in pretty emphatic ways, they could kick you out. But and how does that work if they're not in authority as well? Well, all you can do is say you're not one of us. That would have no other bearing on our church other than that we, I mean, we could still say we were, but somewhere in their system would be a statement that, no, they're not one of us. Like, like we would like to be able to say Westboro Baptist Christ. They're not, not ours. Not, not us. You know, we, we want the authority to do that. And the convention has the authority to say, no, you're not us. And the authority to deny your representation at a meeting. But no authority in this building. The president of the SBC could show up here on a Sunday morning and have zero authority. Have a lot of respect. You know, hey, he's the president. But, uh, but he'd have no in, influence on anything we did here. It's like a, an avenue to participate in the gospel message on a larger scale. That's exactly what it is. It's a missions outreach strategy focused on cooperation among churches. And I know that 15, 20 years ago, uh, the Virginia State, the State Association mm-hmm. Happens from time to time. Yeah. And, and they split over something that they needed to split over, and that was biblical and errors. Yeah. So oddly enough, out of all your large-scale denominations in this country, we have the loosest structure, and we're the only one that's conservative without having had our own split. We didn't break away. Now, we had a season where it got liberal, but we won. So the only denominational entity in this country that can say that. Central Texas Southern Baptist split because of the Baptist faith message. They redid it. Yeah, in 2000, yeah. And some of the, uh, well, this may have been further back, but they changed the, they put in a section about whether they'd be in subject to their husbands. Yep. I think that happened in 2000. Yeah, it was 2000. Yeah. Well, that was that. That was my first convention. It got a big gnarly in Texas. I imagine so. Yeah. Do we send delegates to that shot? Well, sometimes I go. We can send up. There's a number we can yeah, I think yeah. four. Yeah. Um, sometimes me and Anna go. We hadn't gone the last couple. I think uh, I saw you up there Which one? The, like, the one that was in New Orleans. Yeah, I went to the New Orleans one. I'd definitely go to New Orleans because it's, yeah, it's right there. why not? You know, so close. No, well, there's there's no way to challenge the autonomy thing because we have no formal relationships. Okay, I just I read something was going on that was kind of questionable that the new president was trying to be. I guess. I have not heard anything about that. I don't know how you could though, because none of us have to do anything they say. (laughs) Yeah. So the only the only category. But they would have no le- that'd be like a group of people deciding they wanted to own my house. Like that they don't have that option. That no matter what they did, they have no legal right to come and take my house. Well, you'd, yeah, you'd have to say I don't Yeah, but like they have no like say they became one of the okay, well we're going to start owning all SPC properties, keep this stuff in house. Well, they couldn't own our property. We don't even own our property. You know, like <laughs> They, they don't have a legal right to, to do anything. But there's I've never heard of that, though. I don't, that sounds like... I think it was regarding, like, all the uh, sexual abuse cases that were happening. Okay. There was a lot of discussion about, like, 
Gotcha. Yeah. So the problem in that world is even if the Baptist came up with a good system for that, it'd still be non-enforceable. Yeah. Just yeah, it'd be recommended. You couldn't make anybody do anything. So the problem that came out is there was a lot of, um, I mean, there's been a lot of sex abuse cases. There's just lots of them. In, in Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, yeah, in oh. Southern Baptist Convention. Oh. Um, but see, our deal is nobody's ever going to find where we covered stuff up because we've got no entity that can. Um, so, like, we don't have that as a category, but what we do have is churches not telling, not saying anything, not pressing charges. Or they'll have a guy they do press charges on and then find out he, he got arrested, got out later, and now is pastoring a church on the road, and they don't say anything about it. You know, like, that's just dumb. <laughs> so. Didn't that happen locally? <laughs> well... There's, I don't know facts in every scenario, and so I need to, I need to say where I know facts. So, but that one, the one I'm thinking about is not. So, but, <laughs> yeah, moving. On. Um, yeah. So the, the the end of the day, Southern Baptists are just completely autonomous, and there's no enforceable systems. That could be put in place. And I would discourage them if they were, because we don't need to have our own database. We need to use the official databases. We need to make sure we report to the official channels is all we need to do. Because if we make a document, we just open ourselves to legal liability beyond anything we can comprehend. We need, we need to pass that buck off to, to the right. government. So do any churches have just a member at the national level of the convention versus local yeah, so can a church be a member of, say, the national convention yeah. and not the local one? Absolutely. Does that happen? Or it does happen. Does happen. Okay. Mm-hmm. We had a church in our Jackson County Association that got mad, left the association. Just the association. Still SBC in every other category, just not that one for a few years. And they got over it and came back. But, you know, that happens. Are there any uh, SBC affiliates outside the U.S.? Yes. Which is why there's been a strong move to change the name several occasions, because it's it's very geographical designation, and the convention is still largely geographically dispersed. We concentrated here, but there's there's Southern Baptists all over the globe. So we came from one in Japan. So we yeah. came from one of those states. But we actually joined Hawaii's convention. Uh, yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. All right. Any other questions on that topic? I know it's interesting and profit a lot. We don't talk about the Southern Baptist stuff a lot, so maybe that's new to you. Um, but if you have questions, I'm happy to happy to work through them as best I can. So okay, just for clarity, there is no such thing as a Southern Baptist denomination. Correct. Not technically. It's a organization. It's a convention, technically. Okay. Technically speaking, the Southern Baptist Convention only exists two days a year. It's literally the gathering at the annual meeting. Because the SBC cannot do anything right now. Because the SBC is only that group of delegates. And that group of delegates is not together. Therefore, they can't do business. So. <laughs> okay, question. So, okay. Off the Southern Baptist for a second. James wasn't an apostle, and he wasn't an elder. He, he's, I would say he's the, he's, he's an apostle in the sense where the A is kind of going back and forth, and you're not really sure which one it is. You know, he is a brother of Jesus, so he does have a pretty good in-house take on everything. Barnabas is in a similar category, though. Like, there's, there's an apostle reference to him one time, but not necessarily in the sense we're talking about. James is a big deal in the early church, though. So it's Mathis? Matthew? No, the, the last guy. That oh, that they added? Yeah. That's the only thing we know about him. Maybe they decided after the fact that, you know what, we used lots. Maybe this doesn't count. <laughs> okay, well, those are good questions. I'm going to go ahead and close this out. If anybody's got more, I'm happy to, to hang around. Father, we thank you for tonight. Pray that you bless this uh, study. 
pray that you'd help us to read the scriptures faithfully and clearly and, and enact the scriptures faithfully as a church. Help us to submit to eldership and help our elders to lead well and be good examples so that we can follow their lead and grow as disciples of Christ and grow into the maturity that Paul talked about. Father, I pray you'd bless our church as we try to make disciples, as we try to impact Jackson County and especially Goshe. I pray that you would bless us in that effort. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.